This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello and welcome to the Extension Rebellion edition of Romaniacs, hopefully slightly more sedate edition than we've had over the past few weeks. Brexit will now be delayed until the 31st of October, most likely, giving you plenty of time to choose an outfit for Halloween and dress up as your greatest fear. <laughs> We're going as sexy Article 24 of the World Trade Organization oh Treaty. <laughs> it's sexy enough already. I'm Dorian Linsky, and with me here in the Euro election 2019 newsroom, it's Naomi Smith, who helps to run Best for Britain, but still here in her personal capacity. Hi, Naomi. Hello. We've had many questions from listeners about the Euro elections, and we're going to talk about that later. Um, but what do you make of the, the latest state of the Labour-Tory negotiations, which means slightly squeezed out the news? Quite. I mean, I think it's very hard to tell. There seems to be all sorts of different things being spun about what is and isn't being talked about. Apparently, Tories saying that absolutely we are not talking about customs union or any kind of ratification of our deal, and Labour telling us something quite different. Um, so it, it seems to have pretty much stalled uh, this week not not huge amounts going on um and uh, you know both of the parties are in such a mess over brexit that i think uh you know it, whatever either of them does it's not i, I just don't see how they're going to reach any kind of a deal without severely damaging both of their parties but if they're not talking about important stuff have they just been talking about plea bag season two <laughs> like, like twitter has but it like, was so good I well, wouldn't you, blame them if they had been. Maybe that could maybe that could bring them together. Yeah. Um, joining us in a bit, although he's running late, held up by Extinction Rebellion, is Alex Andreu. It's a bit of a podcast this week, as our special guest is Matt Ford, comedian, mock the week in question time guest, host of Unspun on the Dave Channel, and owner operator of the long running live show turned podcast, The Political Party, where he interviews a spectrum of big names from centrist faves like Tony Blair and Michael Heseltine to the wild and woolly fringes of Farage, Mogg, and Galloway. By far his biggest guest, however, was Naomi Smith, who appeared a couple of weeks ago to explain how to stop Brexit. And, uh, and that's why Matt is here today. Matt's Edinburgh Festival show, Brexit Through the Gift Shop, is on tour throughout the UK this summer. Hi, Matt. Welcome to Romaniacs. Hello. It's a pleasure to be here. So you're quite good at this podcasting, Lark, so you can, um, you can, you can offer notes. Well, that's very kind of you to say. <laughs> um, I, I don't... I think any my show particularly really relies on its guests. So as long as I have good guests, as long as I book good people, and I regularly do, um, then it looks after itself, I think. Well, your podcast is, is definitely not an echo chamber. Um, you've got the full range there. When, you, when you're talking to Farage and Mogg, do you ever wish it was an echo chamber? Um, uh, you know what? No. <laughs> and, that's, and, and there have been... I've had to kind of explain guests of mine in the past, including Tommy Robinson, um, I did Farage maybe five years ago, maybe six, no, God, six or seven years ago now. Oh, right. Cla so classic of, Farage. Classic Farage, yeah, <laughs> kind of slightly less threatening Farage. Um, and I interviewed Tommy Robinson when he just left the EDL. And I never want to, the last thing I would ever want to do is make something offensive or deliberately provocative or anything like that. I'm genuinely interested in why people hold the opinions that they have. And I'm genuinely interested in people that run for office, that win, that... You know, experience politics in so many different ways, but people who are politically influential. Um, so I get more of a thrill talking to people that I disagree with. 
Obviously, it's always a pleasure talking to Tony Blair. As you guys know, you had him in here, and he's a great guest, and I think he's probably the best politician I've ever encountered um, and one of the best thinkers I've ever encountered. But I agree with Tony Blair, and it's great to it's great to be reassured that someone as clever as that agrees, you know, has similar opinions to me, but I find it far more interesting talking to people that I completely disagree with, whether that's left, right, leave or remain, and um, just find it so stimulating to challenge my own ideas sometimes change occasionally but on the whole I think remind myself why I hold the opinions that I do by talking to people that I disagree with so um it, so, you know it's difficult sometimes so who's been the most surprisingly impressive guest perhaps someone that you do disagree with um there are just has been very good guests that end well you know it Farage is, is a great entertainer so as a night out, you know, he, he delivers. Galloway has a remarkable grasp of vocabulary. He's probably one of the most gifted orators there's ever been. Scots often are. Oh, and the, and it's just lovely having different accents mm. on. So that mm. makes such a... Carwin Jones was fantastic. I think overall, I think... Not that I was surprised by this, but Tessa Jowell was by far the best guest I've ever had on and one of the most emotional experiences of my <laughs> life. Not even just in terms of interviewing, but I'd never met anyone that special before. And... Um, she talks about politics in a way that I've never heard anyone talk about politics, that the, the honour of representing people and trying to make the world a better place. And she was emotional then talking about it. Yeah. And I, I never expected to have an interview like that with someone. So she had a profound effect on me. And I think the vast majority of people who listen to it, it's their favourite mm. episode. Well, Matt's going to be with us throughout the show as we go deeper into the European elections. How can Remainers use the electoral system to push hardest against Brexit? And how does the Dehaunt electoral system, on which we are all experts, obviously, uh, work anyway? And as Theresa May goes on a possibly infinite Easter walking holiday, we'll be looking at the fractious state of the Tory party and wondering if they can run Brexit negotiations and fight an EU election and run a leadership campaign and manage an internal civil war all at the same time, although they seem to struggle to do one thing. Right, so let alone four. All that after some quick announcements from Alex, who isn't here yet, but will be here, and we're going to put this in in a kind of timey-wimey situation. <laughs> Hello from the future. As well as resetting the doomsday clock to October, Brexit Extension Week produced another welcome bonus for Britain, as many of our listeners realised how very fond they are of the European Council President, Donald Tusk. His strong words of encouragement to Remainers, his firm but fair instructions that Britain should not waste this extra time, those pictures of him as a student in Gdansk in 1981 looking like a hero from a Fassbinder movie. Wow. It was a little too overwhelming for some of our Twitter followers. So we've decided to give you a healthy outlet for your burgeoning feelings with our Donald Tusk short romantic fiction competition. Send us 200 words of your finest Barbara Cartland prose featuring Donald Tusk and the best one will win a personalised one of Romaniac's I Heart Tusk t-shirt and mug set. Plus, I will read out the winning entry on the podcast in my most sensual voice. Keep your submission relatively clean, relatively. It's a family podcast. And send it to info at remaniacs.com with a subject line, From Tusk Till Dawn. Thanks, future Alex. <laughs> <laughs> we will choose a winner in time for the show that goes out on Friday the 3rd of May. Now, if Night Queen Theresa May can't get her undead deal through before May 22nd, it's all systems go for European elections. And eventuality, Conservatives see as a humiliation for Britain another one, and Remainers see as a priceless chance for a soft referendum on Brexit. Lots of our listeners are confused about which tactics will work best for Remain and even how the system works. 
So, Naomi... <laughs> Lucky me. <laughs> the Dehont system is named after everyone's favourite 19th century Belgian lawyer and mathematician, popular Halloween costume choice, Victor Dehont. Uh, what is his system, and is it true that it favours larger parties? Um, it depends, but usually, yes, it does. Uh, so it is a, it's a broadly proportionate system, um, and whoever, whichever party gets the, the most votes, um, you then divide that by two, and if the next party down gets more than that divided by two number, then they win the next seat. If not, the second seat goes again to that big party and, and so on and so on until you filled up however many seats you have for that region. So, for instance, in London, it's eight. Um, the issue is that the polls are suggesting that in England, the two hard Brexit parties are ahead of each of the three main stop Brexit parties, which will probably allow them to win more seats. Um, and that's you know particularly daft when you think that Change UK um, and Lib Dem MEPs will probably end up sitting in the same parliamentary grouping of Liberals and centrists within the European Union once they're elected, within the European Parliament when they're elected. Um, and and also, you know, it's, it's a bit sad that, that um, we're not seeing more of them working together at the moment um, when some Greens and Lib Dems are learning to work together at a local level and things like that. So um, I do understand why listeners are confused and I'll do my best on this show to try and explain what's happening and, and how they should vote or what they should be thinking about when they vote. Uh, and will organisations like Best for Britain be producing a guide on, on who to vote for, the, the do's and do'ts <laughs> <laughs> the European elections? Oh, God, this is going to be horribly fantastic. Oh, I love isn't it? Um, look, it's going to be really tricky for a lot of reasons. Um, First off, as we're recording this, we don't know what the Labour manifesto is going to say. So that hasn't yet been published. And of course, we know that they haven't necessarily been consistent with the conference policy that they passed last September. So a lot of it is waiting to see what is contained in that before anyone starts to say who should vote which way and the other. Because of the complications of the Dehont system, what could end up happening is that if Remainers take their vote away from Labour and give it to Greens, Lib Dems, Change UK, others, in some regions, that may just help get another MEP elected for UKIP or the Brexit Party. So it's not that straightforward. So it's an incredibly difficult thing to do in terms of a tactical vote dashboard as Best of Britain did in 2017 when it was much, much easier to do because you were doing it based on the individual candidate and their views. Remember, in this election, you're voting for the party unless they're an independent. So you're not voting for candidates. So the other thing that we don't yet know is who's been selected in which numbers for each of the parties in their list in their region. So it might be that the number one person is, you know, a fantastic sitting MEP who's a really great Europhile, but the number two ends up being quite a Lexity kind of person. So then it's do you do you vote for that party or not? And you know, so it all gets very, very complicated. So I, I, I think that the the big shame is that the Progressive Alliance hasn't got their act together before this. You know, it, while the Remain campaigns can do what they can to advise and guide and a lot of the attention will have to be on making sure that people are signed up to vote and turned out to vote. And I can talk about that a little bit later in terms of deadlines if, if people want me to. Um, but it's really the parties that have it within their gift to do the deals about non-aggression packs. Maybe they will both stand, but one party will agree not to spend any money in that region to really allow the other one to win, etc., etc. I was the only Lib Dem that spoke at the launch of the Progressive Alliance in uh, 2017 ahead of the snap general election and since then there have been a lot of uh, more local um, 
agreements that have gone on uh, across the whole country between Greens and Lib Dems. And of course, now we've got Change UK in the mix. And I, I saw that the, the Renew Party, if anyone's even vaguely familiar with them, has now rode in with Change UK. But what either of them give each other is not obvious because they don't have infrastructure. They don't have a proven record. They don't have a vote share that we can count on. So um, short answer is there will almost certainly be something. Uh, but the longer answer being that it is so incredibly complicated, it's difficult to know how to guide people without doing harm. And that's the number one rule of campaigning is do no harm. Um, there's a great region by region explainer, which we'll post on Facebook, where you can find by Googling straw man tactical voting for Remainers. Uh, and it is complicated. And it points out that sort of one goal, minimising the UKIP Brexit party vote, mm. requires voting tactically for Labour in many places. Uh, but then there's also another goal, which is boosting the sharing of Remain parties mm. and support for the people's vote. Um, which sort of demands the opposite and might be a better choice in certain uh, seats. Matt, do you do you think that this is a lot to expect voters, even kind of very <laughs> clued up voters, yeah. Remain voters, to have to make all those calculations because the 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 sort of pro-Remain parties sort of haven't um, sort of sorted things out. Absolutely, and and as uh, as Naomi says, with Labour, there's the risk that you're voting for Eurosceptics. And that's obviously counter to uh, the whole point of stopping Brexit. And I just think Labour is the most frustrating part of this situation. The Tories have always been Eurosceptic, really. Um, and Labour are still trying to straddle both sides, still trying to play to two audiences. It's very, you know, if you follow politics even in a cursory way, it's naked now what they're doing. I actually think they quite enjoy a sort of level of trolling of the Remain community. Mm -hmm. I think they enjoy provoking so-called centrists or whatever, however mm. we would self-identify in this room. Um, so I find it immensely frustrating. And I can't, I personally cannot vote Labour while Jeremy Corbyn is in situ, regardless of Brexit, because I think there are other things that go along with voting Labour now that you're enabling, not just the anti-Semitism problem, that mm. I think a lot of re Remainers will struggle to put a cross in a Labour Party box because of Jeremy Corbyn. Now, do we put that aside in this one-shot, you know, this this one-time deal that doesn't affect him getting into Downing Street? Perhaps, I don't know, I'm not sure I could bring myself to vote Labour at the moment. And I, and I, I used to work for the party. Yeah. And that, it's very, very hard. Yeah. It's well, very emotionally yeah. difficult for me to say that. I think it's something called like the, the Seb Dance conundrum, which is you've got there, uh, and he's been on the show a couple of times, you know, a kind of exemplary yes. Remainer MEP. Um, and so I would like to vote for him. I would also, like you said, some have reservations about voting Labour. Uh, and I would also like to support some of these other parties. Yes. But should I penalise somebody I think is very good at his job in order to show support well, for... On that, so um, the, the the rumor mill, for for what it's worth, has yeah. been that there's this split between the list for London that the NEC is endorsing and the list that the General Secretary Jenny Formby um, is endorsing. And the difference between those two is where Seb Dance appears. And in the General Secretary's one, he's nice and high up as a sitting MEP, as you'd expect to be. But the NEC's one, he drops down to a position where he probably is effectively deselected because he wouldn't win. So Jeez. if he ends up in a fourth yeah. or fifth place, I would advise, Dorian, that it would be, you know, even if you want to give him your vote, the, the chances of him being elected at that, being that low down on the list would be so incredibly small that you probably would want to put your vote somewhere else but we don't know yet but that would i mean that would be just i mean what a state this nec is 
I mean, that just seems absurd. Yes, and, and entirely, I relish voting against consistent. It's consistent, but it's kind of like it's it's like there must be other people like me out there who are kind of like, well, I want to support you know good good MEP and got reservations about Labour, and then he says, we'll make it easy for you. <laughs> and we'll deselect the guy you like, yeah. and then we'll just put in some kind of mediocre loyalist, and then you can go off and vote for Lib Dems or the Greens well, or Change it. UK. I mean, okay, then we'll do that. That's where the calculation is fundamentally flawed because Corbyn loyalists are going to vote Labour anyway. Yeah. So they're on side. You don't need to get them on side by changing the list. All you all you risk is alienating soft Labour, you know, remain support mm. by effectively demoting Seb Dance. It's like one of the few MEPs people can name. Yeah. You know, a genuine political star mm. who should be encouraged in any other political movement would be tipped as some sort of future leader. You'd be looking to try and get him into Westminster. Well, maybe that might be the effect of deselecting him, mm. perhaps. But, um, it's, it's interesting, though, because restrain. when you talk about progressive alliances and things like that, there are, of course, people within the Green Party who probably would ally themselves closer to Corbyn yeah. and some that would ally themselves closer to Liberals and um, Change UK types. So it, 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 even within the parties, it's very difficult to see whether an alliance could bring the majority of votes with it or not. Yeah. So I do think that, you know, if we're being realistic and if the polls are to be believed, there are going to, you know, the, the repeat of 2014 in that anti-European parties will mop up the seats. But what the polls are showing is that there are an enormous number of votes for pro-Remain parties, but that they are going to be spread across too many lists at this stage. So the narrative that we have to get over, I think particularly to Europe, from these elections is going to be, but look, in terms of the number of votes cast, far more went to pro-Remain parties. This is now a Europhilic country don't listen to Guy Verhofstadt and cut us off at the knees just as we're becoming the kind of country that you would like us to be and to stay in the EU um, and do give us long extensions and and help, you know, always force our government to have to revoke Article 50 rather than say, no, we're sick of you. Because we are now at that tipping point and I'm sure that that is what we're going to see. And just because of the voting system, it means that the the right wing uh, anti... um, uh, European parties were the ones that end up with the most seats. That's the easy headline for all of the lazy journalists to run, which will be, look, Brexit Party has swept a victory. They've got far more MEPs than anyone else. That's the big story. When yeah. actually it will be that there's been a huge number of votes cast for pro-Remain parties. But the opportunity now with social media, with platforms like this, is that you can cut those numbers and, and spread them fast mm. so people have that information in a way that, you know, who was following the European elections even five years ago, apart from David Cameron, really? No one was looking at the numbers in that forensic way and and when you think of the way that social media has been used in the Scottish referendum which was after those elections all the different markers now yeah. finally people around the middle are using the same tactics and I would say in a more um, less sort of morally dubious way than people at the extremes, but they're they're far better at disseminating information, giving it to their supporters, and mm. and letting that that truth get out there. I mean, I think it's difficult with 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 the Labour issue in these elections because it, it is a it is a different context. I just think my gut tells me we should reward those people that are really trying to stop Brexit. And if a group of people have had the guts to leave the Labour Party and the guts to leave the Tory Party and stand around a whole set of other values, but the unifying number one value is that Brexit is a disaster, I just think it would be a real shame if the Remain community doesn't say, Mm. these are our guys. They're clearly our people. And I think we need to absolutely... And I just think sometimes in politics you have to vote with your heart. And really, in the end, that's the only way that things change. And the European elections are just one step on the way. 
to us eventually, hopefully winning the argument, overturning that decision through another referendum or, mm. or, or whatever that... Mm. Maybe we rejoin in 15 years, whatever that is. But the markers along the way, I think, my gut tells me, you have to back the people that absolutely yeah. agree with you, not the ones that are playing games, not the ones that are manipulating you to get into Downing Street and then not deliver mm. and let us all down. And I think those people have been really brave and I think sometimes the electorate rewards bold decisions and I sort of feel that's where we all should be. But and, and can we, I'm going to speak for myself. Can we really read the vote as a as a soft referendum? Because Sundar Katwala argues that the kind of unexpected voters who swung the last referendum and in the other direction could possibly swing another referendum, you know, Remainers who didn't vote last time, um, are not the kind of people who turn out for European elections. <laughs> Turnout has never gone above, I think, you know, 36%. 30, or something, something. Yeah. Um, so would, will this will this time be different? And if it's not, is it is it sort of meaningful? Because in a way, what I worry about is if you present it as a soft referendum and the Brexit party does really well and Remainers are scattered in terms of seats, yeah. even if overall they produce a lot of votes, then that sort of backfires, because doesn't it? That Therefore, it can be said that we've lost the soft referendum. I don't think so. I think... All these things are opportunities to make an argument and to get people in the habit of going into the voting booth and voting you know, in a Remain way or whatever phrase you would use. So I think you have to be careful not to say that this, mm. <laughs> you know, these no. set of European elections are absolutely the final word. Mm. And no one thinks they are anyway, mm. but they are a huge opportunity. And I think you, you need to get that message out to inspire people to come out. And if they don't come out, well, it's European elections and turnout's low anyway. So I think you can kind of... Yeah, I agree. I think I think you're completely right. It is not a proxy for a referendum. It's no. not, and it can't be, and we must not frame it as such. But they are incredibly important because they are the thing that we're fighting for as Remainers, right? It's 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 so that we can stay in the European Union and continue to have our say on a global platform with our nearest trading neighbours and have a say in all of those decisions that get made that will affect us regardless of whether we're, we're in or out of the EU, frankly. Um, so I think it would be... Um, stupid of us to sit it out we've got to be involved we've got to as you say absolutely encourage people to vote and I think that while turnout is usually very low for these that you know the, the couple of things that have happened have been obviously Brexit I think Trump um, has happened since all of this and people are just more politically engaged and aware and as we've seen with Extinction Rebellion trying to shut down London this week you know young people and Greta Thunberg and you know people all over the world are, who are not normally at all engaged in politics are beginning to understand the importance of it so do make sure that you are um, telling everyone you know to be registered and it's really great if people can register for a postal vote people who are registered for a postal vote are 60% more likely to turn out than those that aren't according to the Electoral Commission and don't forget that EU national um, are also eligible to vote who are living in the UK. Sorry, I should say non-UK EU nationals <laughs> because I am also an EU national. Um, uh, but they just have to fill out an extra form, which is really annoying. It's a it's a declaration that says that they won't also be voting in their home country as okay. well. Um, but the deadlines are rapidly approaching. 7th of April, make sure it's all done by then. I think it's a huge opportunity. Sorry, 7th of May. Oh, yeah, 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 get that right. <laughs> I think it's a huge opportunity, these European... If, they, if we go ahead with them, what an opportunity to get... A, a remain constituency of people across the country in the habit of supporting this new movement, whatever you know, whatever, however people choose to vote. This is just such a gift. It's the first, it's the first chance because it's great people turning out for marches and it's great people signing petitions. But you know, it would just be, it would be so disappointing if that whole movement of energised people didn't 
manifest themselves in a situation like this. I mean, equally, you brace yourself for disappointment, you know. <laughs> I always do. living in the age of disappointment. So, you know, you just have to sort of manage your expectations a bit about yeah. what the result is likely to be. But I just think, I think a lot of people will vote along remain and leave lines, and that's a huge opportunity for both sides. Yeah. But I just think the leave side is, is more, uh, you know, it's had longer in the game, frankly. It's, 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 it's more advanced. So this is the first chance we've had to basically do a UKIP, yeah. coalesce around one issue and, and, and make a noise with it. Just on all of that as well, though. Oh, here's Alex. He's waving at us. He's, <laughs> Alex is about to join us. And now with us is Romaniac's tardiest co-host, Alexandreou. Hello, <laughs> <laughs> so just you rehearsing for the fan fiction um, Alice we've been talking about uh, how we advise people to vote in the European elections this is a vote that you as a, a EU citizen from the mainland can take part in mainland is that <laughs> from the, the mainland. I've forgotten the word from the EU 27 yes um, can take part in who do you feel represents you the best out of the scattered options we have it's difficult because I'm London so if the list is as it was last time, if I vote for someone that I feel more confident about, like Greens or Lib Dems, the person I will probably end up knocking out is Seb Dance, which would be a would just be complete yeah, yeah. fucking tragedy. But I hear now that there are lots of stuff going on within the Labour Party to drop him even further down the list. You should listen to the podcast. We've, is, <laughs> we've, done, we've done this. It's really good. If it's worth saying, it's worth saying twice. Now, shut up. Um, no, but yeah, so I don't know. I mean, in many ways, I think the ideal thing would be for uh, all the pro-European people in Labour and the Conservatives to just get elected and then a day later just all leave <laughs> and form a new grouping. Yeah, that that's would great. Be great. Yeah. <laughs> That's really good. That probably is the best thing. One, um, of, one of the things that we t- talked about was just whether or not these actions would actually take place. And, and you mentioned Toby Robinson at the, at the top of the show, Matt. So um, the one sort of slightly concerning thing I have as a Remain campaigner is that if Tommy Robinson et al. run this slate of candidates and they start polling very, very well, Theresa May will stand in front of the Commons and say to them, look you can have these guys representing Britain on the international stage when they get elected in a couple of weeks' time, or you can back my deal now and we'll pull out. And and the, she may try and use the threat of that as one last chance. I think it's unlikely, and I so, think we almost certainly are going to be fighting these So basically you can have these guys, or you can have these guys with ties on. Indeed. Yeah. <laughs> well, UKIP's... It's a good, new, it's a good choice. UKIP's like exciting it. new roster of candidates includes uh, the alt-right YouTubers known as Count Dankula and Sargon of Akkad. Is that UKIP? That's where British politics is now. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's, it's still anything is better than Annunciata, isn't it? Oh, is she? No, she's running for the Brexit. She's party. running for the yeah. Brexit. But UK, is UKIP now just a far right crank party? Because it, it seems like it's too. It, yeah, Farage is, I mean, for, for presumably ego reasons as well, but Farage has obviously got his own party now. Who's supporting. If you really like Brexit, if you really like Nigel Farage, there's your party. UKIP is now just like people who might be Nazis. Like, why is their support even as it is? Is it just sort of name recognition? Anti-Muslim. There's a lot of anti-Muslim. Yeah, but it's it's horrific now. I mean, I was never never a fan. 
Um, but it does make Farage's one, you know, they've forgotten to do the ties, basically, yeah. haven't they? Although Sargon, I mean, Sargon wore a tie, but he's still, it's still Sargon of Akkad. So why is UKIP even, is UKIP appealing to anybody except the far right now? I, I wrote a lot on this because uh, I had experienced what happened in Greece with Golden Dawn. Mm. And so when I came back and saw what was happening here, it was literally like a rerun of what had happened there three, four years ago. And it's interesting, but that's what the far right does. That's what it's always done. It kind of reinvents itself, creating space for itself. So what's happening with UKIP at the moment, this may sound weird, but it's a, it's a direct result, result of the BNP collapsing. The, the acceptable far right needs to be able to point at something to say they're the extremists, not us. Without that something, and to, to a certain extent, that's why the left has had so many problems in mm. this country as well. That's why people with fairly mildly socialist policies by any standard get called communists yeah. because unlike on the continent there's not a tradition of actual communist mm. parties which mm. exist in mm. you know in France in Greece and most other places I maintain that Farage still wants to take over the conservative party um, and I think he's probably drawing inspiration from what happened in Canada where um, a very right-wing flank broke off from the status quo conservative yeah, yeah. party and then became absolutely enormous and much more popular and came back and engulfed the, the, the old conservative party and I'm sure that that's what Farage's game really is so I think you're right, yeah. it's, it, the UKIP are now serving as very useful idiots for him oh, The UKIP are doing exactly what Farage wants them to do I, I, don't, I don't think we should uh, underestimate that UKIP are doing exactly what Farage needs them to do the question is because of traditional conservatism in the UK, is there an ideological gulf there that can't be bridged? Because something tells me that a conservative party, which is all about and has always been about personal responsibility and personal opportunity, if you have a big rump of the party that's saying, we're victims, we're victims, everyone else is to blame, there's a real mm. clash at the centre of that, you know, an ideological clash. Well, before we move on to the state of the Tories, I know that something you've talked about before, Naomi, is that there are reports of candidates fearing for their safety during the campaign because mm. voters are so angry and I've had people talking about, you know, this unbelievable sort of ferocity on certain mm -hmm. doorsteps. Um, and then you've got Farage talking about putting the fear of God into MPs, which, of course, you know, being Farage, he never goes that far. It's a figure of speech. Um, but is, is that something that you find that you, you know, people you're talking to, are they sort of concerned that, you know, again, we were always kind of anti-hysteria on mm -hmm. the podcast, but there, there is a kind of a nervousness going into this European elections that there wouldn't have been last time. No, because they've not really had time to get nervous about it in the way they've had time to get nervous about a, a second referendum. Um, so I haven't sensed any of them being as concerned about it, and, and largely because it's not on enough people's radars yet and voters aren't really going to wake up to the fact that these elections are even happening. Um, so there, there definitely isn't the anxiety about these that there is about... Uh, you know, another referendum where they're genuinely terrified of of, uh, of fascists. Maybe that will all change um, as and when, you know, constituency surgeries start back up again after the Easter break and, and Labour's manifesto has been published. And if it isn't, 
the fudge that we expect but hope it isn't going to be that that might draw out some nastier uh, elements to attack MPs with but um, it's it, this is one where the MEP candidates will probably have to take the heat rather than the MPs. Well, let's uh, move on to the Tory civil war, with Theresa May promising to vacate number 10 when her deal is passed. <laughs> the frustration among hard to MPs and the <laughs> Tory <never>. membership <laughs> is overflowing. Tory members are cutting up their membership cards. Uh, you're seeing headline in The Spectator, I will never, ever vote Conservative again. And as Health Secretary Matt Hancock put it, voting Conservative used to be something people thought about when they got their first paycheck. Now it's when they get their first winter fuel allowance. <laughs> it's quite a good diss of the Tories by a Tory and, and fairly accurate. Um, historically, people always say it's formidable, the most formidable election-winning machine in the Western world. It's incredible at adapting and surviving and fighting <laughs> a way forward. It doesn't look like that. Um, do you think, and yet, you know, it's very easy to sort of write off parties. And, um, and I mean, of course, we've seen parties across, you know, Europe. And, you know, they do collapse. It is possible. Yeah. Um, but sort of less so, you know, and it's the two main British parties. What do you think of the... Uh, you know, is the Tory party in serious trouble? Uh, it, it is, and I think part of the... Re- it's, it's had a different problem to the Labour Party where Momentum was an organised entryist project endorsed by the leader because May herself isn't part of the EU bank's set that is infiltrating the Tory party, and it's happening in a different way. If Labour wasn't going through that sort of crisis, there would be far greater spotlight on the Tory party. But uh, William Hague said something amazing to me when I interviewed him about the Tories and their relationship with their leaders and their, their rebellions. And he said, um, the Conservative Party is the most <laughs> Conservative MPs are ferociously and passionately loyal to their leader until the point at which they're not. <laughs> and I think and he would know. Yeah, yeah. He would absolutely know that. And I think it's a really good analysis of they are formidable, they do unite to win elections but once that uh, discipline goes it goes in spectacular fashion ruthless and but just before we came on the show i saw something about there's this um other constitutional quirk within the conservative party to get rid of the leader which is if enough regional conservative association chairman sign something i think the threshold's like 60 then they can topple the leader it's not just the backbench 1922 wow. letters thing um so that seems to be in train and 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 could play out over the course of the Easter break when people have got time to call up their allies and different conservative associations and put the pressure on. I mean, they said they had 35 or 40 signatures already. Who knows whether that's true? But, well, uh, they yeah. were saying that about the letters indeed, to the 1920 Uh But as you say, Matt, they, when they want to be ruthless, they are utterly ruthless. And they're, they're being pulled apart on both sides. So you've kind of got that ERG, you know, the people that probably would have joined UKIP in different weather. Mm. are still there and they're they're emboldened in the Tory party. On top of that, obviously, you've got Remain pulling people away. So Subri, Allen, uh, Wollaston, uh, and to some extent Bowles. So you, you've got... They're being attacked on both sides in a way that Labour really is a Remain rebellion in in the Labour party, and that's the, that's the number one issue between the membership and the leader. Mm. Whereas on the Tories, both sides are eating in and, and carve, you know, like erosion on both sides. So it's profound, the problem that they face. And when you interview Tories, uh, how raw is their sort of frustration with May? Do they tend to sort of, you know, cover it up? Do they tend to try and be sort of diplomatic? Or are some of them just coming out and... Oh, some of them privately are, are ferocious, but always have been. You know, the Tories are. The thing is the Tory MPs is they're never really that impressed by their own leader. I remember seeing, you know, when Ten Blair was leading the Labour Party, whatever people thought, the party was mad on him. So even though he had an issue with the NEC and all the rest of it, he was a star when he turned up to that conference. I remember going to the Tory conference when Cameron had just become leader 
And no one really cared because <laughs> Tories themselves feel quite powerful mm. and they're very, you know, they wear their egos in a way that is different to, to Labour folk on the whole. Yeah. So they're just like, well, I'm not going to bloody get excited about some bloody Tory leader. You know, they, they see themselves as powerful people. They're not, they're, they don't defer to the leader in the same way. So, How, um, how are they going to fight the European elections? Badly. <laughs> Other than very badly, but I'm not a, sure they will. Who, who will be a candidate? Who would at this point put themselves forward to be a Conservative MEP candidate? And 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 obviously, Europhile still within the party are probably throwing their hat in the ring. But will they get selected? Will the will the party grandees allow them to be selected? But if not. Are you not just a lesser version of whoever's standing for the Brexit party? <laughs> you know, I, I just I don't know how they're going to do this. And uh, the other thing to add, of course, that we've not talked about is that there's an election much sooner that on the 2nd of May across the whole of England, other than London and Northern Ireland, uh, although, you know, not, not so important for, for this point. Um, there are local elections happening. And um, if canvassing returns uh, are to be believed from the other parties, the Tories are going to be absolutely you know, decimated in terms it's of like a, It's like time. a local election of all the brexit parts. Exactly, it's, it's it? the Shires. <laughs> it really uh, is. And, and, it's, and it's not looking good for them at all. But who, well, who's going to benefit then if it is the brexit parts and they don't like the Tories? Well, they're not going to like Labour more, are they? The... Well, no, but I think the Lib Dems are going to do very, very well in in Libcon marginals in in local council seats up and down the country. I think they'll do very well. Why? But um, do you think so? The Brexit. So where are the Brexit Tories going? Are they just staying home, or are they voting for? You know, well, can the Brexit Party can... muster that amount of candidates in the time they've got? I don't know if they're fighting the local elections. I don't actually. think, I don't they, think are. they are. I don't think they are. Um, uh, I think, yeah, I think turnout probably will be low. I think lots of them won't bother, um, and lots of them are more than happy, even if they're Brexity, to leave the decisions about who collects their bins and fills in their potholes to somebody of a different creed if they think they'll get the job done. Well, UKIP, UKIP, UKIP has huge well. brand yeah. recognition. Yeah. And I think part of the thing with UKIP is most people probably think Farage is UKIP. Yeah. Or UKIP is Farage, yeah. what's the point? Most people don't follow it in the way that we follow it. They're not on Twitter all day following, you know, Brexit Party launch events <coughs> and watching them live on their laptops. They probably haven't even heard of Count Dankula. <laughs> of course, no, they haven't. No, thank God they haven't. Um, so uh, I think I still think for people who are Brexity, UKIP's your kind of number one choice. And we're gonna get a we're gonna get a fascinating slate of candidates going through, I think, because I I'm not entirely sure they will have vetted everyone very thoroughly. They never so did. They're gonna, they never did. So they're, <laughs> especially <laughs> now because they're losing loads of sort of, of the party machinery. There's gonna be to a lot Brexit of party. Old they don't have that surfacing. many that much money. There's gonna be a lot of basically lo- local nutters. Elected. But, but are Sargonavakad and, and Dankula going to stand? As are MEPs, are they? Yeah. Wow. I mean, can you imagine? I mean, they've both got. Yeah. <laughs> Both got a keen head for policy issues, obviously. So they're going to make a real splash in Brussels. But, uh, Brexit will probably announce as their second can- candidate the Countess Annunziata Dankula. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, I just love that. I love that so much that they went, we're the only people that can stick it to the elites. And without further ado, ado our first candidate, Annunziata Rees Mogg. <laughs> I was like, is this like a brass eye kind of thing? What's going on? It seems to work though. There was a there yeah. was a, um, a Sky's Lewis Goodall did a reported from a, a, a Farage rally, and he was you know and he wasn't talking that much about immigration. He was talking about changing a broken system. He was kind of it was yeah. like it was bullshit. But it seemed like very effective bullshit, and people weren't going. But 
you know. But it's about what you perceive the elite or the establishment to be. So mm. people know that Farage is posh and they know that Rhys Mogg is posh. They know that he didn't come from a council estate. That doesn't bother them. It's a, it, this is a culture war mm. where Farage and Rhys Mogg are the sorts of people that say what they think and all the rest of it. And mm. that is what they mean by the elite. What they mean by the elite and the establishment is a political correct. However, they would see that, you know, the BBC mm. are part of it yeah, and yeah. stuff like that. Whereas Rhys Mogg isn't part of this, even though he's as establishment as it gets in the traditional understanding of the establishment. What these people mean is actually people who allow me to say mm. things that I really mm. want to say, i.e. deeply offensive things. Mm. So it's a cultural establishment. And I think that's what the left and, and progressive have been very slow to react to. Is going, well, he's posh. That was never part of the argument. People know Farage is posh. He dresses posh. He behaves posh. He sounds it. Mm. It was always about mm. what sort of people do you like? And what sort of people you vote for, in in the sense of what are your your values in terms of being liberal or not? And yeah. what they just mean is, there's a, they think there's a liberal elite running the country, and therefore, as long as you're not that, you're not the establishment. Yeah, I think you're right. I think the left has been quite slow to realise what is meant by these words. Yeah, and it's not to do with it's not as it was for decades and centuries yeah, and to do with you know power, wealth. Public education, sorry, public schools. You yes. know, it's it's not that. And it's also about speaking with clarity. And one of the great things, if there is a benefit to come out of this mess, is that it has forced politicians around the middle, the sort of liberal left, to not speak in that kind of post New Labour management rubbish. Yeah. And actually speak with the clarity that Jeremy Corbyn speaks with. Speak with, the, or did at least during the uh, leadership election. Speak with the clarity that that Farage does. Is there are lessons in these mm. people? Mm. Is that people like to be spoken to in plain English? Not management speak. Mm. And obviously, that doesn't mean that you have to pretend you've got simple answers because we know that these answers are nuanced and they're difficult. But at least talk to people in, in direct language. But, but that's usually what happens. The, usually the, the direct result of that is that you simplify everything down to nonsense binaries and then feed that to people. And that is a problem, and that is a problem long-term as well. And that's why, e effectively, you're getting the rise of the far right, because they offer simple yes. solutions to complicated problems. That, I mean, that, that is their, their unique selling point. Uh, finally, there is, there is some other activity in the Tory party. The One Nation group relaunched last month as a counterweight to the ERG, uh, with Amber Rudd and Rory Stewart sort of floated as potential leadership candidates. 55 members include Damien Green, Nicky Morgan, Ken Clark, Damien Hines, that crew. Uh, one of them anonymously told the FT, the country can't think that the Tory party has become Marc Francois, which is, <laughs> I mean, it's hard to argue with that. Yeah. But then... They were also trying to sort of saying that the, the, the Tory party had to stand for something more than Brexit. Uh, Amber Rudd said the contenders have to be reminded there's a domestic agenda that gets almost no airtime at all, which is true. Because we've, of we've Brexit. Saying, we've been saying, yeah, that's what I mean. We've been saying that for ages. But what can they offer? Austerity is unpopular. Brexit has sort of sunk their, or at least severely damaged their reputation for economic responsibility. They're not, most of them aren't really into state intervention you know, and reforms. You know, remember we thought Theresa May might... Yeah, yeah, yeah. She might actually do something productive there, but she never did. But most, a lot of the, the Tories don't even have the appetite for talking about that. There doesn't seem any long-term sort of global vision and, you know, climate change or sort of, you know, foreign policy or technology or all the things that, that, that kind of a, a modern party should really have something to offer. So, I mean, if you take away Brexit, what what do the Tories have to take into an election and go, this is what we stand for. It's difficult. Yeah, but I mean, that's the, that's the Gordian knot at the centre of it, that if you want to shrink the state down to nothing, 
then when you need the state to do something, it's not muscular, it's atrophying. You know, th that that's what happened when there were the huge floods during Cameron's um, administration, where suddenly they found that, you know, they mm. starved the Environment Agency of money, local councils had nothing, and suddenly they were running around like headless mm. chickens. And Jess Phillips says that there isn't even one midwife in her entire constituency. Yeah. But can, well, can anyone, I mean, Alex obviously ducked the question, like a politician. I did not. Um, because couldn't, couldn't, <laughs> na couldn't name a policy. Now, there are these people, the One Nation Tories, I'm sure there are kind of younger Tories. Uh, tech. Okay, my answer is tech. I think if the Conservatives, because uh, I think part of what Labour are doing at the moment is I think they're, they're making a very old-fashioned offer. If the Conservatives move towards saying we can be the party of tech entrepreneurs, we're going to make this country the sort of leading authority in AI and all of that, if they plan a a sort of tech future for the country, they could do quite well. So they cyber have, Tories. They yeah, have, cyber Tories. They yeah. have, and it's porn blocking. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I think housing. I speak to so many Tory MPs who say housing, and they realise that housing is a bigger issue for the country than tuition fees. Yeah. gives them an opportunity to outflank Corbyn with young people and first-time buyers. And I think they genuinely have an ideological desire, a lot of them, to, to sort the housing market out. And I think that would be hugely popular yeah. and a positive thing. But yeah. are they a credible voice on housing? Not at the moment, no, but, you know, you can change that with a campaign. I guess. Literally everyone listening to this podcast could do with a holiday right now. I know everyone on it could. But don't worry, we have good news for you. This week's Remainiacs comes to you with the support of our good friends at Everymatic, the boutique travel agency, who'll create a perfect Greek holiday for everyone, whatever your budget. Everymatic are a family business based in Athens, and they think that everyone deserves a bespoke travel experience, not just the gilded elite. Alex from Everymatic, not me, the other Alex, knows the islands and the mainland inside out. She can build your holiday around what you want and guide you to the best of the beaches, food and culture, the greatest country on the face of the earth. I would say that. This year, Alex is recommending Monemvasia on the southeast of the Peloponnese, an amazing medieval town built into the rock, as well as unspoiled Cycladic islands like Kimolos or Kufonisi, where you can walk an entire island on foot. Well, you could walk any island on foot. It's just a matter of how long it would take. Don't choose Australia. And if you're thinking of a spring mini-break, Everymatic can put together a weekend or longer in Athens with insider connections to the food, culture and nightlife of Europe's most exciting city. Get in touch at alex at everymatic.com and tell her Romaniac sent you. She'll sort you out with the best holiday of your life and you can send us a postcard too. That's alex at everymatic.com. Unique, boutique, Greek. Our special guest this week is Matt Ford, comedian, podcaster, regular on Dave and Mock the Week and Nottingham Forest obsessive. His Edinburgh Festival show, Brexit Through the Gift Shop, is on tour now. Matt, has Brexit has Brexit been the making or the breaking of you? <laughs> how has it how has it changed you? It's it's given what it has done is it's made doing political comedy far more exciting, because I've been doing it for a few years now. So during the coalition years, what, yeah, trying to convince I was a political obsessive and I found politics and politicians interesting and and worthy of comedy. The public probably weren't that bothered. Brexit has forced people to be bothered. So in that regard, uh, people are people are consuming news in, in a 
in a different way. And that's also to do with technology. These things have happened at the same time. So audiences are better educated, more uh, aware of what's happening in politics. I don't have to explain stuff as much as I used to. So that's been a positive thing. So in that regard, it's been good. There is the, the side effect of it is that I'm doing all my material really predominantly about Brexit and Trump and Russia and stuff like that, but really revolving around Brexit is that it's obviously relentlessly depressing because you're trying to do comedy material about something you deeply disagree with. And um, I struggle with it. Um, in that regard, but on the whole, you know, obviously being a political comedian, there's been no better time, really. Your podcast has done very well. Um, Our podcast, doing all right. Um, Do you think that Brexit and this sort of politicisation of a lot of people, um, or, you know, this real intensification anyway, has sort of speeded up the sort of the rise of podcasts? Like, you know, Brexit cast as well, you know, it's a mates BBC thing, but it's got its own sort of fan base. And made that happen faster than it than it than it would have. I think there's that, and I also think Brexit has come along at a time so that technology and and uh, and politics have met because obviously a few years ago podcasts didn't exist. So we live in a world where people can just set up their own shows and put them out without trying to get them commissioned by the BBC or by any sort of provider. So you can just set up your own thing. Um, also, what's happened is I think um, if you Think about the sort of stuff you get on radio. I think there are cultural things happening where we were just being constantly told that people wouldn't listen to things that were long, didn't want to read things that were long. That you had, People were stupid and they needed things in small chunks, otherwise you had no hope yeah. of engaging mm. them. And I think that's completely wrong. And what podcasts have shown is people love a long listen. Mm. People listen will sometimes listen for an hour, an hour and a half, two hours. They'll chop it. They won't listen to that necessarily in one sitting. But people love being given... You think of Slow Burn and all these other ones that are really successful and Serial, is that people love being given information. So what's happened is those two things are happening where people go, actually, I do want detail and I do enjoy a a, a long listen. On top of that, I think because of Brexit, people have gone... I think there was a period, basically, because of New Labour, where people went, well, things are basically fine. I don't need to really concentrate that much. Brexit has woken up millions of people, as has Trump, and they've gone... I have got no idea what is going on. And I'm embarrassed that I don't know what's going on. So podcasts like this, hopefully podcasts like mine, are a resource for people where, especially like being... I often think with the guests that I get... I often think, just as a person sat opposite these incredible people, that I've just had a basically one-to-one that you couldn't buy at the best school in the world, <laughs> where Tony Blair's going to sit down for an hour, yeah. or Naomi Smith, or a, an <laughs> academic, and I, I wasn't joking when I said it. Especially but, but, but Naomi. You're right, Picking the brains of wonderful people. People usually get, like, three minutes if they're really high-profile yeah. on a, on a you know, on-the-hour news item yeah, on yeah. Radio 4, or a Today programme, you might get 90 seconds. And, and, and your format allows them to have... Up to you know ninety minutes of just going through every single permutation of the issue that they're there to talk about, yeah. um, and that that is such a luxury now in this you know it, despite twenty four hour rolling news, everyone is still only getting you know a smattering of of time to actually say what they think. And you get the problem is particularly with politicians is they're very good at the top lines, so they're trained for short interviews with sound bites. They're not trained to take four or five questions on the thing. And obviously, I'm not... Some of them are not very good at the short (laughs) ones, let me tell you. And it's not a select committee-style interrogation I'm giving them. It's a pleasant experience, I hope, for Mm, for the guest. But it's also about getting to know them as a person. And there are no platforms, really, that say to a politician, I'm going to respect you for an hour. Mm. (laughs) Hopefully afterwards as well. But, you know, (laughs) I'm I'm going to take you at your word, treat you like a human being, and you tell me why you think privatisation 
vaccination is a good idea or why Brexit's a good idea. And I'm not going to... I'm going to ask you questions because we're going to disagree. But I'm going to do that in a spirit that says, I respect where you're coming from, even if we disagree. And I think that has been lacking. I think political discourse has become so nasty and rude. And I think this is where those of us on the Remain campaign and side have to try and check ourselves a little bit because I think for a while we could definitely say, well... Elements of the Leave campaign are very dark and nasty and sinister and the behaviour is awful of some of them, not all, but some. We have to be very careful not to allow those behaviours to creep into our own movement, to call people thick who voted Leave, to talk about people without university education in a particular way, to talk about the old in a particular way. So I just think when movements are emboldened, they make all sorts of awful mistakes out of confidence, out of emotion. Uh, you saw it with the Scottish Nationalists in the way that they would talk about people who voted to stay in the UK, and I just think we, we have to be so guarded that we don't fall into the trap of letting our anger take us away. And you get a period of time sometimes, I think, where you can sort of feel like you can say what you like and you're going to get away with it. Mm. And in the age of social media, that is so dangerous because you're going to leave stuff everywhere where actually you've probably crossed the line. So I think I've gone into a different point there. Yeah, but I just think in general... Do you, know what the demo- do you know what the demographics of your listeners, broadly speaking, are? I've got no idea. Right. I've got no... I don't know where uh, there's a place that I could get that, if you if you I, know. I've no idea. It just occurs to me that maybe the people who like the long listens are actually the people who like the long reads, and they're not... You know, there are many thousands of them, but they're also a small bubble, in a way. So I don't... I genuinely don't yeah. know, you know, who listens to this. and I The mean, best people. <laughs> all I know is I get young, old, uh, geographic, I get emails yeah. from all over the world of all different ages, of all different... Mm. I get tweets from people from all different socioeconomic groups. Yeah. So I hope, I hope it's, it's sort of uh, accessible to most people. And I think the, th- the thing that's interesting about a podcast like yours and, and kind of this, the space of podcasts is that you are kind of... You know, you're welcoming people in. They don't have to. It's not like a kind of the, the media three-line whip of the Today programme. No. Where you have to turn up and sort of get bollocked. <laughs> um, and that's not the way that sort of, you know, that podcasts work. But at the same time, you're not just trying to give everybody... You don't want everyone to just have an easy ride and no. see what they like. And you've spoken to people from across the spectrum. Yeah. Are there moments when it... When it does get a little, uh, when it when it does sort of get fractious, and there are times when it's only if you get a set. And the ones in front of a live audience are really interesting as a dynamic because I think there's a claustrophobia when there's just two of you. That if someone clearly doesn't want to go down a particular route, the pressure is on the interviewer then. Mm. In front of an audience, the pressure is always on the guest yeah. and the desire to impress a theatre crowd with a funny anecdote or when they go, oh, I can't tell you that and a hundred people go, oh, go on. Yeah. That's a lot more <laughs> yeah, yeah. than me going, come on. They go, of course not. When there's a hundred people there and they've had a couple of Peronis, they go, all right, okay, I'll tell you this one thing. And then <laughs> yeah. you get a bit more, you know, so there's, there's the live audience dynamic is a real... Peer pressure. Peer pressure, peer pressure yeah, bullying people but with a smile on your face. Um, so that, there's that. I just think, on the whole, if you treat people with respect... They actually give you more. And that's not the reason I do it. It's not a Machiavellian design. I just think when people relax, they're far more interesting and it's better to listen to. I'm really interested in the dynamic between your two big passions of football and politics. And I think football can be incredibly political, but I suspect most people that, you know, turn out on a Saturday (laughs) afternoon to to go and watch football probably don't see themselves as as particularly political. Do you very purposely keep them incredibly discreet or is there any kind of overlap in the content that you discuss? Um, I... 
I'd, I'd never really thought about it. Like I, 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 I recognise the similarities that attract me: the, the tribalism, mm. the enjoyment, um, supporting a team. You know, uh, I get all that, that that's similar. I think with, I think you'd have to be careful not to try and politicise sport in the sense of banners and things like that, mm. uh, because once you allow it for one thing, like the poppy, the England Scotland game a few years ago, right. that was on Remembrance Day. Both sides wore a poppy. I I did agree with that, even though I would probably say, once you allow one political statement, Mm. and it is a political Mm -hmm. statement of sorts, Mm -hmm. you kind of have to let others. So I just think... Mm. My fear with football is that um, football fans, as as a mob mentality at times, aren't always the most progressive bunch in the stadium in particular Mm. parts. I would say overall... Football, despite all its problems and the recurring problem of racism that really seems to have worsened in the last couple of years, on the whole, football fans and football has been a, a huge um, positive mm, influence mm. on society. Yeah, And I think it's one of the few... Now we're such a more secular society. It's one of the very few occasions where you are together in a congregation of yeah. thousands of other people, Often you know, singing your heart out. So I think there is something sort of lacking in the, the fabric of our society that actually uh, football brings. And, and as a Remain campaigner, I've often thought that's it's it's there that I think we can win and lose this. You know, mm. until we can convince the people that are in that tribe to care about this stuff. Well, Southgate has been incredible for that. Yeah, hasn't he? Who would have thought that the manager of the England national team would turn out to be one of the great progressive Mm. voices of the last two or three years? Mm, mm. Had that been... Allardyce would never have said that. Venables would never have said it, you know. And I love football, and I'm constantly making apologies for the the England team and the England set-up, because I desperately want England to win something in my life, and I care so much about... I think what's interesting with England that the other home nations don't have is I always make a point of flying the flag during the tournament. And obviously from left-wing or so-called progressive people get awful. (laughs) (laughs) But if if progressive people don't own the flag, I'm not going to fly it all year round because that would be weird. And I think that would be weird in any country, by the way. From your progressive white van. (laughs) Exactly, yeah. yeah. (laughs) But it's... I think during a tournament, if you if you fly it, you're, there is a kind of political statement there that you're proud to be English. It's mad to not like the country you're from. You obviously have to accept mm. the problems of its history and its present and all the rest of it. But to kind of be at war, you have to shape a, a progressive identity for your country if you care about it. And I think what Southgate has done, firstly, England has a diverse team, which really helps. And I think that it, him choosing to be vocal about it was really impressive. I Because he, he didn't have to do it. He could have let the the image speak for itself, but he chose to make a point about Brexit. He chose to make a point about the values of our society. And I think that's very exciting now that of all the places yeah. for that voice to come from, it, it's, it's really remarkable. And I just think that gives me great hope for the future. You used to be an advisor for the Labour Party. Yeah. Right? When, when when was that? So that was around 2005, 2007. And what sort of things were you advising? Oh, crikey. So I used to run elections around the country, so I would get sent out whenever there was a... Lo- uh, if there was a death and there was a parliamentary by-election, or I'd get sent to basically run local election campaigns. So I ran Warrington. I worked on the Sedgefield by-election when Tony Blair left. Um, and so there like was a sort of political funeral parlour. <laughs> yeah, sort of it's more like an army call you up and, yes, and yeah, say yeah. we've lost one. That's right. So there was that. I, I was part of a team, and then I would, and then I went to work specifically for one politician in local government. I was a advisor to the elected mayor of Stoke on Trent, which sounds dull as hell, but 
for people who are interested in local government mm. reform, outside of London, once the mayoral model had been, the elected mayoral model had been tried in London, it was offered to other cities around the UK. Stoke was one of, I think, only 12 others to adopt it. It was then the only city to have another referendum to abolish it. And I was working for the bloke that they were trying to not just like beat an election, but literally abolish his <laughs> job. And I, I was always drawn in politics to like the hardest fights. That's where I wanted to go. So I how did that work out? Uh, we lost the referendum and... Um, the, he lost his job. We went back, he lost his job, yeah the, yeah, the post was abolished. But I always wanted to go where the action was. I never wanted to work in safe seats. I always wanted to work in the marginals. I always wanted to go on by-elections. And there was something about knocking on... I mean, in my time in politics, as including as an activist, God knows how many doors I knocked on. Thousands, possibly 100,000 doors. Once you've had to explain to people face-to-face why they should vote Labour... It gives you such a better understanding of what British public opinion is and how varied and diverse and strange. So when you get these people who've sort of been in politics five minutes talking about how easy it is to win elections, I always just think, you haven't. You don't no. really, you're getting lucky and it's going to come back and get you, you know, whether it's the SNP sort of riding high and they go, well, it's just dead easy, you know. We, we put SNP on our rosette and we just get elected. That hard work is always... It's so good just intellectually to have to talk to so many different people and explain why to old people they should vote Labour, black people, gay people, straight people, a bloke with ten dogs, you know, just different... Every different person, you're telling them that actually we're the party for you. So what's your relationship with Labour and the left like now, having having (laughs) talked to tens of thousands of people and said why they should vote Labour? Yeah. Uh, Yeah. It's tragic. I left the day that Corbyn became leader... And I think you've got to be really careful in any political movement to say, I told you so, but it, it was so obvious the way this was going to play out, given what he was like, given the people he'd hung around with. And I think what is really... The most difficult thing now is that good people with the best of intentions overlooked serious shortcomings of an individual because they just wanted a more left-wing Labour Party. Those people are now having to wake up to the reality of that decision that with the alliances that he had, with the friendships that he still has, with the things that he said, with the attitudes he has, a whole load of baggage comes with that that is deeply unsavoury, and they were warned, and they didn't listen. And it's, it, there are parallels with Brexit, I think, but uh, you know, a lot of people who regard themselves as educated made a very bad decision, in my view, and um, a deeply regressive one. And, and I really struggle now with the Labour Party because it, I don't think it is the Labour Party. He's completely out of step with all Labour traditions. He's not a patriot. He doesn't believe in defending the country in the same way that, say, Attlee did. So he's completely out of the tradition with all Labour leaders. Uh, the mechanisms to remove him have completely gone. And um, I would worry about a Corbyn government. So when people, usually what people could yeah. say to you is, oh, well, you know, you've probably got more in common with him than you have with the Tory. I don't think I have. I don't like either of them. And I don't want to be forced to choose between Theresa May and Jeremy Corbyn. <laughs> but, but, but what happens, I and mean, this happens particularly with, with sort of re- Remainers in general, but also people who supported Labour but don't like Corbyn, yeah. um, that they are sort of exiled from the left. Yeah. That they don't count as left anymore and they become, scare quote, centrists. Yeah. Is that a label that you would own, or do you think, well, I am on the left, or part of the left, it's just not the part of the left that's currently represented by the Labour leadership? Yeah, I'd say centre-left. I don't see centrist as a... It doesn't trigger me. I don't see it as, a, um, as an offensive term. And they use it like it's an offensive. The people who do use it is like, I just think it's such a lame insult. And around the middle is kind of where we are, and it would be nice to have it. The problem is, and I'm sure you've covered it here numerous times... But that point on the political compass, the centre-left was always seen as a compromise and not a set of values in itself. Mm. Mm. And as a result, it has lacked the moral clarity and clout that, say, socialism or capitalism has, or conservatism. 
So finding a better word than centrism, which in itself sounds like a compromise, is something that the movement, or if there is a movement, needs to find, because that is a legitimate point of view. It is absolutely right to be left-wing in some areas, and right if you're going to use those labels, I think they're broken. But that is no less a, a moral, morally justifiable and defensible place than socialism, communism, capitalism or anything else. And yet it's seen as, oh, it's a bit piss weak. You're only doing that to win elections rather than you actually believe it. Yeah. And I think Brexit has forced millions of people to say, I actually do believe in this and it's a really positive thing and it is coherent. Yeah. I call it yeah. social liberalism. I yeah. call it pro- being progressive. That that that's the yes. term I've landed on. Because what I see on both the left and the right is the division between people who want to refight a battle of the past. So true. Versus people who look at the problems and think of practical solutions for the future. And I think that's the real division. Um, so your live show, Brexit Through the Gift Shop, you said, I don't think it is a leave or remain thing, regardless of which way you voted, the way it's been handled has been a complete disaster. Yes. Surely, though, there are some jokes in there that aren't just about the handling and lean towards the Romani side? Oh, I mean, it's, it's <laughs> absolutely, yeah. My politics absolutely come through it. So it's a Remain show in that regard. Um, I think the point I was making was, even if you voted Leave, you can totally agree that it's been handled badly. And I think a lot of Leavers feel that they won. What is this mess? You know, this is what we vote for or whatever. So um, I get a lot of Leavers come to the show. I get more Remainers than Leavers, but I, I do get Leavers come to the show, um, which I think is a good thing. So I would never want to just be playing to one audience, but it is predominantly Remainers. And is come. there a space for jokes now? Because so much has, has sort of happened in the process, um, much of it ludicrous, that there are jokes that you can make that that would entertain Leavers that were not available to you, uh, you know, in like July 2016, where the, the only jokes to be made about Brexit would sort of have to be yeah, I anti-lever. Mean, the thing is, even if... Never underestimate people's ability to laugh at themselves as well. So I get loads of leavers coming who, like, completely disagree with everything I say, but they like my Boris Johnson impression or they like the way I impersonate Donald Trump. So, like, <laughs> they just they come yeah. for that and they have to put up with a bit of, you know... Me having a pop at them in a, in a very pleasant way. Um, and I just write all the time. So the show is constantly updating. So I think even since Edinburgh. So I'm doing it again at the... Um, I'm doing two London dates at the Underbelly on the 22nd of April and at the Bloomsbury Theatre on Saturday the 25th of May. And compared to the show that I did in Edinburgh, it's, it's probably half of it is brand new because mm. stuff dates, and I never want to be referring people back to stuff that happened over a year ago. Um, and new issues come along. You know, we've got a new political party now and stuff like that. So I'm just constantly updating it under the banner of Brexit through the gift shop. Um, so it's not so much that I'm trying to focus on different things. It's whatever's happening I'll, I'll write material about. So, And on top of that, Brexit is an umbrella for dealing with Corbyn, dealing with Russia, dealing with Trump and, and all sorts of other things that are, are jumping off points. But it is all... It's all political, and Brexit is the is the raw beating heart of it. <laughs> yeah, you can't get away from it. Um, no, so you... but it is entertaining. I should say <laughs> it's a funny show <laughs> and a great yeah, night out. It's quite important. To... Yeah, no, I like. Yeah, we a lot of people have said they found it very cathartic. A lot of remainers that come say that actually it's made them feel a little bit better. That it's it's a it's bloodletting for them. They for about a, five minutes, they can have a really good well, an hour and a half, and they can <laughs> um, they can they can laugh at it. And it, in a way, even though it's it's you know you're dealing with the hard reality of it. Mm. 
So in that way, it's quite shocking. But... I, I didn't mean to suggest your show was only funny for five minutes. <laughs> no. I meant to suggest that the good feeling lasts for about five yes, minutes after does, yeah. the show <laughs> until you then get home and turn on the news and find well, out that it. Mark yeah. Francois has invaded Finland. <laughs> <laughs> You mentioned Gareth Southgate earlier as an yeah. exemplary uh, fo- footballing politician. Yes. Um, Brian Clough, Notts oh, Forest. Man. Nottingham Forest. What? You've got to be so careful. That's you can't call racist. it Notts Forest? Is it racist <laughs> no. to call Nottingham Forest Notts Forest? Yes, yes it is, yes. Do you have to say Nottingham County? No, because Notts is an abbreviation of Nottinghamshire, oh, which is right, a county, right, and Nottingham is the city. Right. So, Jesus. Oh, yes, this is serious stuff. Wow. Man. I was so That's careful. Oh, but anyway, how anyway, anyway, <laughs> Nottingham Forest. Because Brian Clough, I found out recently in reading a book about the Anti-Nazi League, was one of the first supporters of the, of the Anti-Nazi League, and possibly uh, he, was, he was part of the kind of Yes campaign in 1975. So he was quite a kind of active... He was highly political. Dude. He was friends with um, Philip Whitehead, who was then, I think, the MP for Derby North. The party tried to get him to stand for Parliament in, in the 90s even. Um, he was a regular at Colnott Dole marchers who give out free tickets to Forest to strike in minors. Highly political left-wing um, icon, as well as being the greatest football manager of all time. <laughs> How would he have handled Brexit? Would he? Yeah. Would he, would he, <laughs> um, oh my God! Well, he would be the best opponent of it because he would destroy it with wit. And, and what he had was a mixture of brilliant intellect delivered in um, charismatic and and blunt language. So he would be one of the. I mean, think Danny Dyer, um, <laughs> but uh, but northern and cleverer and. Um, I mean, Clough was a superstar, so someone like him opposing it would be profound now. And he would call it... I remember there's a great clip from him at a Labour Party conference, I think in 1992. It might be a regional conference, but he's on a Labour platform. And this is one of my worst impressions, but forgive it. He says... <laughs> and he's talking about the Tory government at the time. He says, we need people in work who've got talent, because there's plenty of shithouses running the country that haven't. <laughs> and I just think he would call Brexit out in that yeah. way. He would say, they lied. You know, and he would imagine that. And I think that... In a way, the question gets to the heart of something, which is the Remain campaign cannot be London-based. Whatever other people's vote, whatever it is, you know, when people like Danny Dyer speak out of it, out about it, it has such an impact. And um, we need more working-class voices around yeah. the place, and that would be very profound, I think. Just one thing I want to check on an ethical point: is it ethical to just do the voice of someone that you want to interview on the podcast who hasn't agreed to show up? And just do that. <laughs> I don't know. Are you oh, allowed what would to I inter- do that? Yeah. Are you allowed to just interview William Hay? <laughs> I don't know. Wow. It seems like there might I mean, be issues there. I've but... never thought about that. I mean, the cheekiest I've ever got is when you impersonate someone in front of them. <laughs> I've done Blair to Blair, Hague to Hague. I'm trying to think of what else I've done. Blair to Blair sounds like an 80s soul band. <laughs> <laughs> he kind of... I remember him saying, that, yeah, you know, when, my, when I first saw you know, the impression, I... I think it sounded particularly like that, but you know, my, <laughs> you know, my kids came to see you and they said, Dad, you know, really, he even moves like that. Yeah, so. <laughs> I kind of get all the, all the podcast medium doesn't quite. You can't look. actually see the eyebrows and the teeth it's and the hair. Yeah, yeah. 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 transformed yeah. listeners. Yeah. It's, it's all that. It's you know, spooky. It's, it is. But Haig, Haig, I didn't, I don't think he knew how to take it. <laughs> I said, well, the key to a Haig impression is going very, Not very high here. <laughs> and then very, very low. And he just kind of went, hmm. <laughs> <laughs> thought about it for a second. Uh, we're almost at the end of the show. Uh, so that means another contribution to the Brexit time capsule. Matt Ford, what's going in our archive of things that we will miss if we ever end up leaving? Um, going in the uh, EU queue at airports. 
that every time I travel, not that oh. I often fly, but that I often think, I'm going to be in a different queue next mm. time, and it's going to be longer and hotter. I did that the other day. I almost nightmare. danced across the, because it was, you know, like on a tile on the floor at Amsterdam Airport, and it just said, EU. And I was like, do, do, do. <laughs> <laughs> Still. Yeah. So good that's point. my contribution. That's a good one. Uh, this week's EU language farewell is Spanish from listener Luke Baxter. Hola, amigos. Vaya lío en que nos hemos metido, ¿verdad? No sé cómo vamos a salir de este laberinto, pero espero que sea solo un hasta luego y no un adiós. That means, hello, friends. What a mess we've got ourselves in. I don't know how we're going to get out of this labyrinth, but I hope it's just to see you later rather than a goodbye for good. Oh, <laughs> poignant. Send us your European language clips at info at romaniacs.com. We'll use the best ones. That's the end of the show. Matt Ford, thanks for coming in. It's Brexit. been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Bless you. Brexit through the gift shop is touring now. Uh, now, here's our theme tune, Demon is a Monster, and a salute to some of our latest Patreon backers. Thanks from me to Mark Bandele English, Caroline Chalnock, Nigel McCrill, Liam Young, Stephen Brooks, Peter Orr, Andy Thompson, Abigail Sanderson, Hannah Cottle and Justin Cook. Hello to Ian Brown, David Steed, Tim Jones, Ben Goldacre, Eric Gilligan, Finn O'Mahony, John, PB, another mysterious one, Samantha Slater and Paul Hurst. And thanks for me to Joanna Steele, Magan Pye, Matthew McLeod, Mark McAvoy, Paul Ferguson, Lucy, Simon Pedley, Daniel Tetlow and Adrian W. Romaniacs was presented by Dorian Linsky with Naomi Smith and Alex Andreu. The producer is Andrew Harrison and audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Romaniacs is a Podmasters production. Thank you.